What's going on? This is the Saturday Down South podcast. I am Connor O'Gara. Will, I have become a weather jerk and I need to stop. Wow, it's this is shocking. It, it is a big time problem and I caught myself yesterday because I, I've noticed all those who are being impacted by this weather across the southeast. I mean, in all seriousness, I hope you're doing well. I hope you don't have, you know, you're not without power or anything like that. And I hope you're, you're getting through this very atypical time in which I think I saw something that's like 73% of the country can throw a snowball right now, which is just absurd to even think about. So I've seen all of this and I've saw the snow in College Station and my guys up in Memphis I do radio with, like they're, they're dealing with six inches of snow and they can't get out of their houses. I've had Alabama radio shows that have been canceled twice this week. And during all of this, I've been the jerk. I've been the jerk and I realized that because I, I tweeted out yesterday, you know, I'm not that guy that brags about the weather, but if I were that guy, I'd say something like this, and then it's a screenshot of the weather here in sunny, beautiful Central Florida, where it's you know 72 degrees and sunny, and life is good. And then you know to make matters worse, in case I wasn't a bad enough guy by doing that, I get the video from my cousin who's back in Chicago. Who um, shout out to Marty Frisbee, who's got baby number two on the way. That post just hit Facebook for those of you checking that stuff out. Um, sends me a video where she's like shoveling two feet of snow and I'm thinking to myself I feel so I've never felt so good living in this place at one point and I had this naughty little response back of oh yeah you know I feel bad I really do but just just move down here like just just move down here because you don't have to you shouldn't have to put up with that and people back in the midwest are used to it but people who live in the south are experiencing some of this stuff for the first time at least in this way but I need to stop being a weather jerk because that's not who I am. So I thought you were going to say that you were the weather jerk because you were laughing at the people in like, you know, Alabama who don't know how to do a snow because you're from up north. But you've gone fully the other way and now you're laughing yeah. at them because it's warm. Yep. <laughs> that's, you know, that, and I don't want to be that guy. And I, I, I think it's just, I think it's rude when I don't get those texts in the 25 years that I lived in the Midwest. So I'm, I'm disavowing weather jerk Connor. He is no longer with us. I'm going to be sympathetic to the people that are dealing with crap weather while I'm probably working on my tan in my backyard. I'm not going to be that guy anymore. Is that? I want you to hold me to that. Can you do that? Yeah. Yeah. And like you said, it's okay. been some, some wild videos, some stuff that like I'm sure that you've seen a lot more of than me. For us in Atlanta, it has been the least precipitation I've ever seen in my life. It's just been bone cold. So, like, it's just been wild watching everyone deal with it in a different way. Everybody does. Everybody does. Um, a shout out to the idea of winter football, by the way. That would look great right now. We'd have a lot of fun with that. I could definitely see uh, an egg bowl wherein, like, six points are scored or something like that. It's just miserable conditions and nobody wants to be there. But thank God we don't have to deal with that. Plan for today, we're not going to be talking about weather. We've got Mizzou coach Eli Drinkowitz coming on. Fun conversation with him. He's someone who, who sort of came into this league as a rare unknown and just didn't really take any crap from anyone. Super self-aware guy, came into this whole thing with the right approach, exactly what Mizzou needed. So it's cool to be able to kind of dig into his rise in the coaching profession, which I'm not sure how many people really know about so we got into all that stuff i've also got some thoughts on why i love 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 gus and ucf making this thing happen right now plus i thought it was pretty telling that josh heupel's most important hire took so long at tennessee and we've got adam spencer to break down sec hoops in figuring it out but before we do all of that, today's podcast is brought to you by the Saturday Football Newsletter. If you're obsessed with college football, you're going to want to get this newsletter. It is free and comes straight to your inbox, keeping you up to date on major news in college football in just a few minutes. To sign up, go to saturday.football. Yep, that's the website address. I say it all the time. Go to your internet browser and punch in saturday.football. It's free. You can unsubscribe if you don't like it at any time. If you're like me, though, and you love college football, I'm sure that you're going to love this. Check it out. Go to Saturday.Football and add your email address today. I talk about it all the time. My brother doesn't like social media at all. He is not that person. He loves the Saturday football newsletter. You don't have to sit through all the different headlines and stuff like that to find your news. It just comes to your inbox. It's right there. Go subscribe today. Okay. I love that Gus and UCF made this happen. Will, I got a question for you. What would you do if you won the lottery? 
Ooh. Like 10 million bucks. Let's say $10 million. We go somewhere super remote. Okay, so you would go there and just stay there, yep. like on, on an island. Fight Island. Will Island, we'd, we'd call it, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, okay. I think I'd travel with my wife. I'd probably put some money aside for future kids, donate a little, do a little bit of the cliche stuff. I know I'd hit Chick-fil-A super hard that night, no doubt about that. I'd probably give some to my mom, my brother. I definitely wouldn't tell anyone about it either. I'd be like Twyla on Schitt's Creek. Sorry if I just spoiled that for someone, by the way, who's like working their way through Schitt's Creek right now. Great show, keep it up. Um, are you, Will, are you that person? Did I just spoil that for you? I think I'm in season three. All right, well. <laughs> Okay, Twyla, Twyla may or may not, but definitely does win the lottery. Um, spoiler, sorry about that. Wow. Okay, back on track here. Um, to be honest though, if I won the lottery, I'd keep doing this exact job. I truly love what I do. I wouldn't quit writing and talking about college football. What I wouldn't do is take on an entirely new grind. I wouldn't immediately go back to covering preps in central Nebraska. As much as I enjoyed my time there, I would just make sure I'd do something that made me truly happy and I didn't have to put up with any BS. If I didn't have a job, I'd probably be super picky about it, but I definitely wouldn't hop right back into working immediately. After all, I don't need the money. I got 10 million bucks, I'm good. That brings us to Gus Malzahn. Gus basically won the lottery. And that's not diminishing his work ethic. The guy worked for 15 years in high school football before going to college. He was a teacher, he was an athletic director, and at Auburn, the guy lasted eight years in one of the most pressure-packed jobs in the sport. But getting $21.45 million not to work, that's winning the lottery. It's the richest buyout in FBS history. He's in a class of his own. It's $3 million more than what Willie Taggart got from Florida State. And if you want to get into some of the offset language of the contract where FAU took care of like $4 million bucks for, for Willie Taggart's buyout that Florida State didn't have to pay, it's actually a little bit less than Florida State had to pay. It's more like $14 million. Auburn, on the other hand, is paying all of that because there's no offset money in Gus's deal. He can double dip. That means there's not going to be some sort of Brett Bielema lawsuit over whether he gets a job to their liking so that they can get out of paying that. Gus was going to ride this thing out. You heard Gene Chizik say on this very show. He said, Gus, take a year off. Wait for three to four jobs next year that you're going to get to choose from. You're going to get a great job. And in my opinion, Chizik was absolutely right. I'm told that Gus was supposed to be golfing next week. Somebody told me that. The, the same person who told me that said very quickly into this process, Gus was bored. He was bored immediately. So imagine being Gus. You've done nothing but coach and teach for 30 years. It's mid-February and you're bored. Gus actually had COVID too. So his schedule was really different, kind of shut down everything and he was working his way back from that. Sure, he, he could have, Gus absolutely could have gone somewhere and been a coordinator. But again, that's a different kind of grind. Why would you do that? Then Terry Mohajer becomes UCF's new AD. That's the guy who Gus worked with for a year at Arkansas State. Gus had just gotten to Arkansas State right before Mohajer did. Then Gus goes 9-3 and, and leaves for Auburn just after Mohajer started. He calls up Gus on that Sunday night after he gets the UCF AD job. That's Mohajer. And he says, I could hear the fire through the phone when I was talking with Gus. That was when Mohajer realized that he had his guy. So fast forward to Gus getting introduced as UCF's next head coach eight days later. Everyone who watched that press conference saw a different type of Gus. He was amped in a way that I, I cannot recall. Like, I've never seen him that excited. And it's not just because he was asked about Waffle House like 10 minutes into the thing. He also got asked, great question, by the way, by the reporter who was asking about whether or not he thought he was ready for the pressure cooker of the UCF. Bless the heart of the reporter who thinks that UCF is more of a pressure cooker than Auburn. Don't get me wrong. I live here in Orlando. UCF fans, there's some kind of fierce. It's Twitter Beetlejuice. Don't say UCF on Twitter. It's actually the biggest enrollment of students in America. People forget that. But more of a pressure cooker than Auburn? Come on. That's like, that's like saying someone, that's like, all right, what's a good comp here? Someone who does a high wire act across the Grand Canyon, those videos that just make your palms sweat that you just hate watching. That's like asking that person if they're comfortable riding a bike in a residential neighborhood. Gus did say that he wants pressure. He doesn't want a job where there's not pressure. But dare I say UCF is the exact amount right of pressure for him. He can lose and not have GoFundMe accounts started for his buyout. Gus can get back to his roots of teaching and developing talent in a different sort of way. By the way, he's gonna recruit so much better at UCF than anybody that came before him. UCF's last 10 classes, none of them ranked in the top 50 nationally. You heard me talk about talent composite on this podcast and why that matters. That's how you elevate your program. Gus has been recruiting blue chip talent in the Southeast for the last decade plus, so I have no concerns about that. Consider that one of the many reasons that Mohajer made a splash with Gus Malzahn. 
Brand matters with this. And Mohajer said that having a household name like Gus is huge, but having someone who can actually coach is why UCF can capitalize on this. Some probably laughed at that, like thinking to themselves, oh, wait, what are you talking about? Gus can coach? He can't coach, you idiot. That's why he's at UCF. That's why he just took a group of five job. I'm not going to sit here and say that Gus should have gotten a decade at Auburn. He had his shortcomings. There's no doubt about it. We criticized him many times on this podcast. I would say, you know, he couldn't really find that quarterback post-Nick Marshall. The back and forth with the play calling thing, it, it was an ordeal constantly. He also said that he's never giving up play calling again. That's one of the things that he realized during this time that he was off for two months, um, collecting, you know, seven fig- eight figures to be able to not work. Gus's road record against Alabama, Georgia, and LSU was 0-12. Even Will Muschamp won at Georgia once. Yeah, he didn't do that. But if you're a Mahajir, you're getting someone who won two-thirds of his games as, as a head coach. He's got five top 25 seasons, even though he played in the toughest division in this sport, bar none. He's been to a national title. He's got a proven offensive identity. The guy literally wrote the book on the no-huddle, hurry-up offense. Mohajir didn't see Gus as damaged goods. He didn't see him as the guy who lacked motivation either. And I think that's why you do these calls when you first get a job like that. Gus is so fired up. And he said that UCF is going to get the best version of him. That's not to say that he didn't give the best version of himself at Auburn. It was interesting, though, hearing Gus not want to say the name Auburn. Sometimes, and you can tell, relationships just run their course. But timing is everything in life. It takes the right fit. I was asked a variation of this certain question a lot in the last few days. Basically, like, did UCF upgrade and why didn't, get, why didn't Tennessee get Gus? Right? Like that's that's kind of been the the takeaway from seeing him accept this job. I think two things can be true at the same time. I think Gus is a better coach than Josh Heupel, at least right now. He's definitely more proven. But Gus is a better fit for UCF than Tennessee. I was asked that multiple times, like, why wouldn't Gus want to go to Tennessee? And why wouldn't Tennessee want Gus? Gus going to Tennessee would have been really similar to what he dealt with at Auburn. And there's this angst from the fan base, there's annual dates with Alabama and Georgia, and there's people behind the scenes potentially working against you. Whereas at UCF, he goes to a situation where he gets to get back to his roots. He's got an athletic director who's already worked with. I truly think that Mohadra getting the AD job made it a reality for Gus. He's gonna be at a place that's already become a national brand. Some people might laugh at that. Everybody knows who UCF is. Everybody knows who UCF is now. And part of it's because they were so boisterous with the fake national championship, but they do have a national brand. And he's gonna play to that better than Heupel did. Gus is so unbelievably motivated right now. The guy who just won the lottery is that motivated. He's got new life, which sometimes everyone needs. I don't know if it's a top 20 job like he said it was. You have to factor facilities into that. If the ceiling doesn't include making a college football playoff, I'm not really sure you can go down that route and say it's a top 20 job. But man, I believed it when he said that. And I believe that he actually believes that. That was the look of a guy more motivated than ever, not the look of a guy who's set for life at age 55. I was ready to run through a wall listening to that guy. I don't have any affiliation to UCF other than the proximity. Both Gus and UCF deserve so much credit for getting this done. UCF didn't treat Gus like a fired coach. It saw a guy who was in a really weird spot and who probably deserved another chance. I think that's a fair thing to say about Gus. Though at the same time, while they didn't treat him like a coach who was damaged goods per se, he's actually only getting $2.3 million annually on this new deal. Hey, no state income tax in the state of Florida. They nickel and dime you pretty much anywhere else they can, but hey, no state income tax, so it's all good there. That had to be the easiest deal ever to negotiate for UCF. It's the same amount of money that Josh Heupel was getting on an annual basis there. Gus is going to make, ready for this. I, I should have paused before I said this. You ready for this, Will? Gus is going to make more from Auburn in his next four years than what he's going to make at UCF. That's not including the $11 million that he just got within 30 days of getting fired. Think about that for a second. Gus is double dipping in a way that is is historic, and it's unbelievable what he's going to be able to cash in on now with this opportunity. Mahajra said that he got about 650 texts about the job. It was totally coveted by the masses. I have no doubt about that. UCF checks so many boxes, and it's not just because Orlando is roller coasters and Gideon's cookies are a pretty life-changing experience, those who know. If anything, though, I-4 traffic, a bit of a drawback, those who know, you know. That's why Gus didn't treat this like just another opportunity. There was zero doubt that he was going to do exactly what Chiswick said. 
I mean, we're in mid-February right now. He could have waited till next year. It would have been easy. That's what do to win the lottery would usually do. Gus won the lottery. He just took a totally different path after that. It's one that he didn't see coming, but it's one that he knew he couldn't pass up. I wouldn't bet my life savings on this working because I think Gus still has to figure out some things. He had the benefit of a top 20 defense for the last five years. He has to continue to evolve, which he said he has in the last two months. We'll wait and see about that. But I can't wait for Gus at UCF. I really can't. And all I hope for now, man, we need that UCF SEC two for one as soon as possible. Josh Heupel's defensive hurdle. So harking back a little bit to UCF here, and I promise this isn't just going to be a UCF podcast. It's not. I really promise you when I say that. I was listening to Terry Mohodger in that press conference that he had introducing Gus Malzahn, and he said he talked to UCF players about who they'd want as a head coach. They said all the cliche things, but there was something else that I found really interesting that he shared with the media. He said that the players wanted a coach who played complementary football. In other words, they wanted a coach who has a style that doesn't totally kill the defense. Why would they say that, you ask? Well, let's take a look back at Josh Heupel's time of possession ranks since 2015. If you recall, 2015 is kind of when he had that offensive transformation. He gets fired from Oklahoma, his alma mater, and he's got to basically kind of reinvent himself, and he gets these jobs calling plays. So 2015, that was when he was at Utah State. Number 87 in the country. All right, not too bad. Then he goes to Mizzou, offensive coordinator there with Drew Locke. Number 128 in the country in time of possession. Year after that, same thing, 128. Then he goes to UCF. Think it's going to get a whole lot better? Of course it doesn't. At UCF, time of possession ranking, number 126 in year one, number 123 in year two, and number 109 in year three. So five of those six years, he couldn't even crack the top 100 in time of possession. Four of those six years, he couldn't even crack the top 120 in FBS. 120! Now, those last three years, they were at UCF. The two years before that, when he was the offensive coordinator at Mizzou, consider this. Barry Odom's defense during that time that Josh Leifel was there ranked number 90 and number 97. We know what we think of Barry Odom as a defensive mind. The year before Josh Heupel got to Mizzou, Barry Odom had the number five defense in the country. The year after Josh Heupel leaves Mizzou, Mizzou's defense improves by a full touchdown. Why do I bring all of this up? Because Josh Heupel's offense doesn't set up defenses to succeed. It's home run plays, it's 80-yard bombs, or three and outs. It's not really, but go ask Mizzou fans about that. For all the success that Drew Locke had, that's their biggest complaint about that offense during that era. So understand why it took him three weeks to hire his most important assistant. That's at the root of it. And I'm assuming that that was at the top of his to-do list, hiring a defensive coordinator. That to-do list didn't necessarily include calling a verbally committed kid the day before signing day to let him know that his scholarship wasn't any good. Heupel had one of his assistants do that. After all, he had a staff to hire. He couldn't get Louisville defensive coordinator Brian Brown. Heupel did get him a promotion at Louisville, though, so good on Heupel for doing that. He couldn't get Todd Orlando, the defensive coordinator at USC. He reportedly turned that down. Ohio State linebackers coach slash co-defensive coordinator Al Washington, he also turned the job down. Blake Baker, who apparently got play-calling duties stripped at Miami, he left for LSU to be the linebackers coach. He reportedly turned it down. There's a rumor that he didn't actually get offered. Still, the point remains, it took three weeks for Josh Heupel to hire Tim Banks. Look, I don't know if Tim Banks is going to work out. I know he had one of those co-defensive coordinator titles at Penn State. I sort of low-key hate the way that those head coaches use that co-title. I think it's a little bit a little bit too much of like a, just a name thing. And sometimes it comes with a little bit of a raise. But I don't really know that it changes responsibilities that much. And that's a rant probably for another time. But everyone refers to Brent Pry as the defensive coordinator at Penn State. Banks has been the co-DC at four different schools. The first time he got one of those jobs was actually with, ironically enough, Butch Jones at Cincinnati. Banks was actually Butch's right-hand guy for five years. Speaking of Butch, you know what else has a not-so-great track record? Tennessee's top assistants making seven figures. Banks is now part of that club. He's making an average of $1.4 million. Some were saying that that makes the job super attractive because who wouldn't want to make seven figures with total autonomy on that side of the ball? That's important for, court, for coordinators when you don't have a head coach looking over your shoulder like that. But look at the track record of Tennessee's seven-figure assistants. I realize this is very recent memory here, but still, stay with me on this. Bob Shoup, defensive coordinator in 2016-2017. Both of those defense finishes in the top 
bottom half nationally. So bottom half nationally that both of those defenses finished. Tyson Helton, he was the offensive coordinator in 2018. That offense ranked 109 nationally. How in the world that guy got the head job at Western Kentucky after that, I will never know. Jim Chaney, offensive coordinator, each of the last two years, number 98 in scoring, then he was number 108 in scoring. Hey, at least that's an upgrade from Tyson Helton. That's good, right? Derek Ainsley, defense coordinator, 2019-2020, didn't have autonomy because Jeremy Pruitt's on that side of the ball. He still ended up having to find a new coaching gig. That's part of this thing. Yeah, it'd be super cool to make that kind of money. Who wouldn't want to make seven figures, rabid fan base, all those things? But Hypel's Tennessee's sixth coach in 13 seasons. That's well documented. Tennessee is seen right now as a ticking time bomb. That's what the market told us. Hypel absolutely could have found people who wanted this job. But would they have been worthy in his eyes of getting that seven-figure deal? Would they be worthy of being his most important assistant hire? Fair or not, Hypel is now going to get a lot of these Gus comparisons. Not necessarily from a record standpoint, because don't get it twisted. UCF's not in the SEC. It's, it's, just, it, it's just not. I think, though, that it's about who does a better job of elevating their program. Speaking of Gus, how long did it take Gus Malzahn to hire his top assistant, you ask? One day. Gus literally hired his defensive coordinator the day after he was introduced. He didn't even need a seven-figure deal to hire Travis Williams. I bet he's making half of what Tim Banks is making at Tennessee. By the way, Gus poached Williams, who was on Auburn staff for seven of the years that, that Gus was there. He wasn't retained by the new Auburn staff. Williams had just gotten a new job as linebackers coach at Miami. Gus calls him up and boom, target number one is on board. That to me is incredibly telling. Josh Heupel needed three weeks. And yeah, I understand. He's got a totally different deck to work with. Seems like pretty much everyone on that defense hit the transfer portal. I realize not everyone Tennessee fans, but a lot of guys did. They're possibly facing NCAA sanctions. It's not exactly the easiest recruiting situation. I bring this up because Heupel isn't about to reel off top eight offenses like he's UCF. He's just, he's just not. If his offense ranks in the top one-third nationally in the next two years, that's a win. That's a massive win. That's like what LSU did this past year. They were actually exactly on the one-third mark nationally in scoring. But Coach O messed up the hiring of his top assistant. Five-star talent couldn't save LSU's defense, and it was ranked number 98 nationally. LSU was 5-5. Five and five. Same thing with Ole Miss. Ole Miss had the number 14 offense nationally. And I thought Kiffin messed up his defensive coordinator hires. I've, I haven't been quiet about that. I've said that repeatedly. I didn't think Chris Partridge and DJ Durkin were the guys who were going to coach up that defense. I didn't really think from a schematic standpoint that made a lot of sense. That group was number 117 nationally. Ole Miss was 5-5. Five and five. The funny thing is, I think a 500 record is the ceiling for Hypel right now. Not four years from now, but like year one, year two. And some of that could depend on what these NCAA penalties look like. What I do know is that it took three weeks. And it took a $4.2 million contract. That's fully guaranteed. It's got some offset language in there. But it took $4.2 million for Hypel to be able to get a defensive coordinator. And it's a guy who hasn't even been calling plays the last five years. It's pretty telling. All right, let's go to my interview with Eli Drinkowitz. I think you listen to him for like 20 minutes or so, and you can instantly tell kind of why he is the way that he is. He's a little feisty, a little bit feisty. I don't know if it's just the fact that, like he says, he's 5'10", and that contributes to the way that we think about some of these guys, but I thought it was very interesting. Great, great insight from the Mizzou coach. So here is Eli Drinkowitz. I'm now excited to be joined by a very special guest, a first-time guest, it is Mizzou coach Eli Drinkowitz. Eli, I went back and I watched your opening press conference at Mizzou. You did something that was super relatable that I do all the time. You misspoke. You said that your goal was to win <laughs> Sun Belt championships. And then somebody chimed in, actually, and I, don't, I didn't remember this, and said he just did that and called out to you. I raised an eyebrow when I saw that because if you watch that clip, you looked at your notes right before you said it. Now, my theory is that you did that on purpose so that people would underestimate you, which absolutely worked <laughs> if that's what you were going for. You can be honest now yeah. that the season's over. Is, is that what happened? You know, uh, first off, I can't believe you added a very in front of special guest. I, don't, I think that was probably a little bit too many superlatives <laughs> there. But um, uh, you know what? That Everything that happened, you know, to getting this job and having the press conference was such a blur. I don't really remember. I, I do know I misspoke. I do know a bunch of people have kind of, you know, latched onto that. Um, and, you know, I kind of think my whole life I've, I've been a little bit underestimated. Maybe it's because of the uh, – 
you know, the shortness and stature. Maybe it's the glasses. Maybe it's the, the double chin. I don't know. But uh, it works for me. It kind of gives me a natural chip on my shoulder. And, uh, but uh, not a, I don't think I intentionally meant to mess up, but it does kind of help. You're right, though. I think you caught a lot of people by surprise, especially after the switch to the all-SEC schedule was announced. I thought the deck could not have been more stacked against you and Sam Pittman at Arkansas, and both of you, I thought, surpassed expectations. When was the moment that you first realized that you had a team that was going to be able to handle the ebbs and flows of this weird year? Um, honestly, the second half of the Alabama game, uh, because I, I, I thought it, at that moment it could really go in a couple of directions. You know, we were obviously getting getting walloped pretty good uh, at halftime, and our team kept fighting. They kept competing. Uh, you know, we, we were able to make the score look better than the game actually was. But, you know, we fought our butt off in the second half. And I thought, all right, we, we got something here. We, we got a team that will compete. Um, but we're just going to have to grow together as a team. Um, in the games that we actually played, you know, complimentary football, we we were either in and, and won or had a chance to win. The games that we didn't, we struggled. But uh, I really thought it was the second half of that game. I think I've run out of things to say about Nick Bolton, and I'm sure you're in that same <laughs> camp based on some of the comments I've seen you say about him this year. Is there a story of him that stands out that you witnessed in your first year there? Um. You know, I think one thing that stands out for me is that before every practice, you know, he was voted the team captain. He would go and hug the other two captains, and then he would pat him on the butt, and then we would get into stretch. And for me, that was something remarkable because he didn't have to do that, and it was a genuine love and care for his teammates and his fellow captains um, that I really could relate to. And it, it was you know, it was something that, that was genuine that nobody told him to do. He just, he did it on his own. And I've told, I, I've told as many scouts as will listen and GMs or whoever that there's no, the only knock you're going to have on Nick Bolton is his height because you're not going to find one in the intangibles, the character, the work ethic. You just can't. And uh, that's, that's hard to say about any player that I've ever been around. I think if he's like 6'2", six, 6'3", six, those Devin White comps would be would be there. Because you're right, those instincts, I mean, they are second to none And when you actually sit down and watch them. It's incredible. It is incredible to watch what he's been able to do and what he's developed into. I'm sure when he came back, you were, I mean, you realize that, all right, I don't have to sell him. You know, you were fired up. Yeah. Your celebrations, they're epic. I mean, the LSU one in the <laughs> locker room, that was really good. But the one, of course, everybody knows is the, the Ennis Rakestraw commitment video. I know you've talked a lot about it. Your reaction mm -hmm. to that was the best video of signing day last year. And you reacted like I did when the Cubs won the World Series. You had this like, <laughs> oh, my God. You were so shocked that it happened. But then you went yeah. through the halls. You hugged everyone in sight. I asked this because I had to explain to my wife why I had a stronger reaction to the Cubs winning the World Series than I did at our wedding day. You're married. You've got four daughters. Was there any explaining to do when you got home and your wife saw the video? Yeah, I think my wife wanted to know why why she, I don't do that when she calls and says dinner's ready. Um, <laughs> you know, I think uh, so. Yeah, I mean, I've had to explain that to a couple people, and, and now the toughest thing is explaining it to the rest of the recruits when when they don't see a video of like that when I celebrate. But you know, really, that was just one of the the first wins, and it was genuine, and we didn't know and. And I sure as heck didn't know. And, uh, you know, we, there's always, you know, there's always this confidence that you can do something, but until it happens, you're just never quite sure. And I guess being a, a first time head coach in this league and, and really trying to recruit against some of the big boys and knowing the guys that had really come in late and, and wanted him. Uh, and we had actually got word that he was going, you know, there was a right a, a, a recruiting writer that had, Sent, sent me a direct message said yeah he's going to Alabama so for us to you know pull that one off was like all right maybe we can really do this here in your own words you're a 510 dorky white dude who has no business coaching college football um yeah. again your words not mine not mine yeah, yeah you grew yeah. up wanting 
you grew up wanting to be a lawyer and you instead take this path that starts with being a volunteer assistant on Gus Malzahn's high school staff. And I know it was your wife who encouraged you to follow Gus to Auburn and take a job that paid 15 grand a year roughly to become the quality control coach in 2010. A lot of SEC fans, myself included, kept asking the question after you got hired, who is Eli Drinkwitz? Explain your roots in Arkansas and kind of why you went on the path that you did. Yeah, uh, I'm just a, a, a guy who loves coaching football, loves impacting lives. Always thought I would do it at the high school level. Kind of had a, a a dream mapped out of being a junior high coach for five years, high school coach for five years, offensive coordinator for five years, and I actually had a list of you know about 32 schools in the, in Arkansas that I wanted to be the head coach at or would consider being the head coach at. And so for me, I'm very much goal driven and and kind of thought that was the you know, the, the ceiling for me. And when coach Malzahn gave us the opportunity to get into college football, I really still didn't grasp the opportunity until, uh, I was doing an end of the year evaluation with coach Harson. He asked me what my goals were in college football. And I was like, I don't know. I really, I really never sat, you know, I never really wrote him out or thought about it. I just was kind of enjoying the ride. And he encouraged me like, Hey man, you need to figure out, what you want to be in college football and then go do it. And that's when I really thought, well, shoot, maybe I can do this. And, you know, I've said this a lot. It reminds me of playing the ways the Lord directs your steps. I, I really can't tell you how I got to be the head coach of Missouri. It's just there's been a series of events that have played out that have led to this opportunity. And I've just tried to do the very best I could with each opportunity that was presented to me. And, and, uh, but man, it's 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 a wild ride, and that's why I say I really don't know that I have any business being in college football. But I'm here, and uh, we're here. Our staff's here, and, and shoot, man, we're going for it with everything we got because it's kind of one of those deals like there's no regrets. Like if it doesn't work out, man, oh well, we're on house money anyway. It's kind of like when you go to the casino and your your buddy gives you a hundred bucks to go play roulette, man. Like you go for it with everything you got, and that's it's kind of how I feel. Like. I'm going for it with everything I got. I'm burning on both ends, just trying to recruit and coach and and be as as uh, stuck in the moment as I can. Because um, I really don't know that I, you know, have done everything right to be here. And well, I mean, I think it shows. I think it shows in the, the impression that you make on people. And you know, after you have the year that you had at Appalachian State. You know, there's interest from Power Five schools, and one of those, you know, reportedly was Arkansas. And you know, it's it's your home state, and ultimately, of course, you end up at Mizzou. And I know you're happy where you're at. You don't like to look back at the past, but how difficult was that decision not to side with the nostalgia of going back to your home state, a place that obviously, you know, you you pretty much cut your teeth in this field. Uh, you know, I'm just. For me, Mizzou was the right fit at the right time and just excited about, you know, what that opportunity could be um, and felt like, you know, again, it, was, it wasn't really about anything else that was going on. It was more about what was the right fit for me at the right time and, you know, really felt like I had a great team coming back at Appalachian State. Felt like, man, maybe maybe the opportunity to stay here was better, but was convinced um, when the, when the chancellor, the president, um, the athletic director, uh, the board of curators, a couple of members of the board of curators were all there to, to to basically recruit me. I felt like okay, there's a synergy here of what we can try to accomplish, and um, you know I'm really kind of motivated by doing things that have never been done before, and th- there's a uh, there's an opportunity to do some things here that have never been done and really kind of write your own legacy and your own story. And that's why Mizzou was such a, a great fit for me. When you watch your offense, it has some, it has some of those, uh, you know, basic principles that made Gus so popular with the no huddle, the spread, you know, move the quarterback outside of the pocket and some of the little wrinkles in there, you can see shades of that. You were super balanced though. You're one. And I know everyone says, Oh, we want to be multiple. We want to do this. We want to do that. What would you say your offense developed into by season's end, and how did it differ from some of the groups that you ran at Appalachian State and NC State? Well, I think uh, good offenses always 
formulate around their best players and they figure out what their quarterback can do well and then figure out how to highlight, you know, their best position. For us last year, our best position was our running backs, whether it be Larry Roundtree or Tyler Beatty. And then our quarterback was developing into his own. And so we tried to have, you know, we tried to make sure that, that we put him in, in advantageous positions to be successful. Um, so I think there was times when, man, our offense looked really explosive, and then there was times where we, we didn't push the envelope enough with Connor. And that's really, for me, the point of emphasis with our growth this year is make sure that we can continue to push and let Connor grow, but not put him in a position where he, he uh, feels all the pressure. I think when you look at the Mississippi State game, you could tell he played different than he had the rest of the games because he felt like he had to make too many plays. And we got to dial that back but continue to help him uh, elevate and push the ball down the field. So it's exciting. We, we were able to add a, a, a few more wrinkles maybe with our with our down-the-field speed with a couple of additions to our team, Mookie Cooper and, and Dominic Lovett. So look for our offense to really more expand vertically down the field than maybe we did. But, you know, for us, our offense always is what we call pro-tempo. It's pro-style concepts, tempo-based. And so that's what you saw but we weren't quite as explosive as we need to be uh, in order to compete at the highest levels in this league. And, and that's what we got to create in this offseason. I think, you know, one of the things, the more I've read about you, the more I've listened to you, you are, I mean, a straight shooter through and through. And I, I said before the year started, before you ever coached the game, that I kind of felt like you were becoming like the SEC East version of Lane Kiffin. And just in terms of that transparency <laughs> that you could have, I mean, you, you haven't been shy about calling out others on the recruiting trail and stuff. And you just kind of say what's what's on your mind, not necessarily out of disrespect, but it kind of came off as, oh, Mizzou isn't Mr. Nice Guy anymore. Have you had yeah. moments where in year two as an FBS head coach where you tell yourself after the fact that you want to dial it back? Or are you instead kind of like, you know what? No, I got this chip on my shoulder. This is who I am. And I'm not going to filter myself just so that I can try and make friends in this league. Yeah, it, it, here's the realization. And this is when I, it, it really hit me when I was, I went into a, a SEC head coaches meeting when we could do it in person last year, last February. And the reality of it is, nobody's going to make room for Eli Drinkwitz at the SEC head coach's table. You better make room for yourself. You better establish who you are. Uh, there's no more Mr. Nice Guy. Like, this is the life we've chosen, you know, the godfather. Like, this is the life you've chosen, so you better go for it. It's, it's a short-lived lived, uh, tenure in this, in, in this profession. So going around being a nice guy doesn't help you at all, right? Like, this is the job. you got a job to do. And, uh, you know, I, I don't necessarily try to be Lane Kiffin. I just try to be Eli Drinkwitz. I, I call what I see. Um, I say what I'm, you know, I say what I say. Uh, I try to be respectful. I think if there's a few things maybe I could could have dialed back. Yeah, maybe I, I've learned something from there. But uh, when you ask me a question, I'm going to tell you the answer or what I believe the answer to be. And, you know, we're going to keep on rocking and rolling. But nobody's going to make room for Mizzou in this league. Uh, so we better make room for ourselves and, and, you know, sometimes you got to announce your presence with authority. I'll just start calling – I'll start calling um, Kiffin, SEC West, Eli Drinkowitz. That'll make up for it after, <laughs> after the year that yeah. you said. He won't You've take had, that uh, very kindly. <laughs> you're not wrong about that you're not wrong about that you've uh you've had a knack for developing running backs they've always just fared really well in your system you know going back to nc state boise state and you know you ask a lot of them and i know you talk about building it around your personnel and if you have a running back that can take that on then you're more than willing to go that route did you feel like larry roundtree didn't get the love that he deserved and how do you replace someone like that that meant so much to your team last year yeah Obviously, I think Larry showed who he was down last week or two weeks ago at the Senior Bowl. Yeah, outstanding week was really one of the better backs there because he can do so many different things. And yeah, you know, Larry rushed for, uh, you know, he's rushed for a thousand in this league. I think he ended up at nine eighty four this past year in ten SEC games. He's a guy that can really take the physical toll. He's the only back I've ever had that could take, you know, thirty carries and still go through a full practice on Tuesday and not miss a rep. And, and he just had a mental toughness to him, uh, very capable in protection, very capable with the ball in his hands. It's going to be very difficult to replace that because of the amount of carries that he could handle. Um, you know, Tyler Beatty, our, our guy who was kind of a number two behind him, is going to get the opportunity, but you can't ask him to do the same kind of things that we asked Larry. And so, again, we'll have to reshape the offense within the identity of who we are, but format it so that it can take advantage of Tyler's strengths and not expect Tyler to be – 
you know, Larry. And I think one of the things when you go back and look at our history, I appreciate you seeing, seeing that, but like, you know, all of our backs have been a little different. We had Jay Ajayi, we had Jeremy McNichols, we've had Matt Days, we've had Naheem Hines, we've had Jalen Samuels, we had Darrington Evans, now we've had Larry Roundtree. They all had distinct differences, um, but we're able to highlight those differences um, and and still get them the ball. And I think that's one of the things, that's why we call ourselves pro-tempo. We don't run a system, right? We're not just, uh, you know, air raid where we throw it every down and we're not just, uh, you know, uh, pro style where we're going to get in two back set and hand it off. We're, we're pro tempo. So we're going to develop our offense around our players within a core identity of who we are. Is coaching in this league what you expected or is it different? Uh, I don't know that it's, it's, I didn't know what to expect to be honest. And I think uh, one of the things that's been a little bit of surprise is the amount of turnover that we've had. You know, I was on an SEC Zoom call uh, recently, and in the reality of in the last year, there's been eight head coaching changes in our league, which is well over half of our league. So I think that's a little bit different and unique. I think the the amount of turnover within schemes uh, of coordinators has been unique and different. I think one of the things that doesn't get enough credit is that Coach Saban and what he's been able to do at Alabama is remarkable because he's kept the same schemes on both sides of the ball. Now, there's a different flavor to it because the coordinators call plays based on what they believe in, but they call the Alabama offense and the Alabama defense, and I think that's what's giving them a leg up is they're not constantly turning over schemes and having to teach new schemes. I think that's something that the rest of the league is going to have to figure out because there is so much coaching turnover. Last one I'll get you out on here. Um, you're coming off this year that surpassed national expectations. You just signed Mizzou's highest rated class in six years. You want this to be the beginning of something special. Instead of just asking you what the goal is for 2021, I'll instead ask you what would prompt another reaction like the NS Rakestraw commitment video? You know, the reality of it is for me, like five and five wasn't good enough at all our goal is to win the sec east and then three sec east games that we played and we were outscored by 82 points we were down uh 21 14 to the to, uh, to georgia at halftime at home i mean that's a game we should be in in the fourth quarter and find a way to win and we clearly didn't against florida we were down 20 to 7 and against uh tennessee we were down 20 to 6 and in those games we didn't we didn't complete we didn't compete well enough in the second half so for me, in order to uh, say that 2021 is going to be a success, we've got to continue to close the gap on the SEC East. And so for me, the benchmark games that are going to come forward, obviously we've got to, Kentucky's getting better, South Carolina and Vanderbilt are obviously getting better. So we're going to have to continue to improve to compete with those guys. But we've got to close the gap with those three schools and compete at a higher level and find a way to beat those teams. Um, look, I, nobody's going to settle for second around here, okay? I don't care what... Saturdays down south, you know, predicted level of ex, uh, expert is for, for each team or what their ceiling is. I have a belief system of what Mizzou can accomplish. And uh, the only way that I'm going to celebrate like that is is once we accomplish it, which I'm not going to misspeak. It's clearly to win the SEC East in a bowl game with class integrity and academic excellence. I love it. I love it. Yeah, you are not misspeaking on that one anytime soon. Great, great stuff. This has been awesome. Really, really appreciate the time. And uh, wish you the best of luck this year and beyond. All right, Connor. Appreciate you having me on and uh, look forward to uh, hopefully getting on here again. All right. We've got an SEC Hoops edition of Figuring It Out. We took to the streets, the Facebook group streets, as well as Twitter. And I thought that figuring it out, you know, it's kind of perfect for SEC Hoops. But, you know, you're the person that would probably be able to make the best sense of what's happened with our SEC basketball season. So uh, we have on uh, our resident hoops, hoops expert, Adam Spencer. Adam, I'm going to I'm going to start by taking my attempt to figure out SEC hoops as someone who is strictly a casual observer until probably like this time of year when you start picking it up a little bit more. It's just football over again. Alabama's elite. Arkansas basketball is streaking like Texas A&M. And then a Texas A&M football, that is. And then there's like a handful of good teams who can disappoint at the most random, unexpected times. Did I just did I figure out SEC basketball? And Vanderbilt's at the bottom. So I think you've got it pretty, 
pretty much figured out. Alabama has been great. Vanderbilt's at the bottom. That's uh, yeah, that's pretty much it. Uh, Texas A&M is not living up to their football counterparts, but yeah, you're right. There are plenty of other teams in that sort of uh, second tier, uh, distant second tier to Alabama that, uh, you know, Tennessee can win or lose at any time. Mizzou is causing me to have my hair turn prematurely gray and, uh, you know, Ole Miss can be a lot of fun. That's the same under Lane Kiffin and uh, Kermit Davis. So, yeah, it's been a really interesting year, and just trying to make too much sense of what's happened so far is uh, it's kind of a fool's errand at this point. So we'll see. Real quick before we dig into our Facebook group questions, Adam, you said after last night, and you were just talking about it, you said after last night that you were quitting Mizzou basketball following the loss to Georgia. By the way, shout out to Tom Crean for somehow making that team better after Anthony Edwards left. Adam, I'm going to give you a little spin zone here. I was looking at some of the Mizzou numbers, and I saw that Mizzou is number 120 in scoring. They're 216 in free throw percentage. They're 293 in three-point percentage. And Ken Palm hates Mizzou for whatever. They're 51 nationally in his adjusted efficiency margin. I guess what I'm saying is that you can now totally drop your expectations so that your heart doesn't get broken like it's 2012 all over again. That's good. You would think so, but every time. <laughs> I know I said I know I said I'm quitting this team, but – I guarantee you Saturday against South Carolina, I'll be right there watching. And uh, if they don't win that one, I'll say I'm done again. And then I'll be back on Tuesday or Wednesday. And I, I just, I, I know I say I can, but I just, I can't quit this team. And it's, it's really, it's beyond frustrating and everything was going right during non-conference play. And then they beat Alabama. And now it's just, I, I just don't know what happened to this team. And it's just, you're right. Like every, by every model, they should not be this good. But last year, they were one of the best free throw shooting teams in the entire conference and in the entire country. And now that is just completely collapsed. And it's just it's inexplicable because they they'll make like all their first half free throws. They'll go for like like nine for nine in the first half. Then in the second half down the stretch, they'll go like over four at times. And it's just it's beyond frustrating. I don't know what's wrong because these are all the same players that were on that great free throw shooting team. Like this should be a much better team than it is. And I know they're still going to make the tournament, but it's just, I wouldn't, I'm just glad that they're not going to be a two seed. Let me, let me say that because I think that they're a first round upset waiting to happen. I'll never forget that. Just covering the NCAA tournament. And I was in Portland for, for media availability and everybody, as soon as the Rick Pitino press conference finished, and that actually sounded a lot more ominous than it probably was, (laughs) but everybody turns this like one small TV in the media room and we're watching Mizzou lose that game in the first round. And I'm just thinking to myself, imagine being a senior at Mizzou right now and how much that would absolutely suck. Adam, you were that senior at Mizzou. So it can't get any worse than that, though. That's the good news, right? Yeah, I hope so. Because that one, my my roommates and I went and broke some furniture in the front yard after that game. And the, uh, the good news was for that was that Duke, if you'll remember, lost, I believe, to Lehigh the very next day as a two seed. So I know everybody remembers that Mizzou lost to Norfolk State, but, you know, it it was pretty quickly rendered irrelevant in that tournament because Duke, a much bigger national brand, did lose. But, yeah, let's just hope that Mizzou's not a two seed this year. And I don't think they're, they're going to be based on the way that they're playing. So no worries there. Fair point. Fair point. All right. We've got a six pack of questions. We've got some from the Facebook group. Dex Kendall wants to know, this is a question I've seen asked a lot from South Carolina fans. What's the future of Frank Martin? Frank Martin's going to be there as long as Frank Martin wants to be there. You know, he's, Hmm. he's had some really rough goes with COVID this year and, you know, he shaved all his hair. He, he looks awful frankly but he's doing okay he seems to look like or he seems to be acting like he wants to coach he said the other day he wants to come back he said coaching is the only thing that he knows how to do and you know I believe him and he's good at it he took South Carolina to a final four like that earns you as many years as you want at South Carolina so I think he's he's around as long as he wants to be and it sounds like he wants to be so South Carolina should welcome him back with open arms for next year, the season after, the season after, as long as he wants to coach. Frank Martin's one of those guys, too, that you're right. Like, when, when you see him for the first time, you're like, wait a minute. That's, he's one of those guys that always looked so distinct and so um, militarian. I don't know if that's a word or not, but <laughs> his look right now, you're just like, oh, my gosh, this is, this, this is really 
clung out to him. And it's just kind of crazy to see him such a, such a tough guy and somebody that so many people respect for what he's had to go through from a health perspective. He was on his deathbed to looking like this now, but yeah, I, I mean, I agree. I think there's plenty of South Carolina fans kind of wondering if he's going to call the shots moving forward. Um, another program that's the barrel right now in the SEC and we brought him up earlier. They're pretty much been on the bottom of the barrel for recent memory. Um, Vandy, Jeff Johnson, Jeff Jensen wants to know, was hiring Jerry Stackhouse a mistake or will he rise above the Twitter feuds and maximize the talent he has in Nashville? I like Jerry Stackhouse. And honestly, like I like the way that this Vanderbilt team is playing. It's, it's, it's a bit confusing to me that they haven't won more games, but you know, they, they've had some bad luck. Like he, They've had good recruits, even dating back to the uh, Bryce Drew era. They have Darius Garland come in, and then he gets hurt. They have Aaron Neesmith last year, and then he gets hurt. You know, they have Scottie Pippen this year, and Scottie Pippen is, I think, right now leading the conference in scoring. If not, he's right behind Cam Thomas. So, you know, Scottie Pippen Jr. is a lot of fun to watch. And they also have Max Evans. They have Dylan Disu. Like, they have some guys on that team. And we're starting to see that lately. You know, they've won, I think, two of their last four. And, I mean, that doesn't sound great. That's 500. But for Vanderbilt, I mean, man, that's, you know, that's pretty great. And they just won by 21 at, at Mississippi State. And that's the first. That's their biggest win since 2016 uh, in SEC play. So, I think that the Jerry Stackhouse thing is a great hire. And I still think that he, you know, yeah, he gets in these beefs, but it shows he cares. Like there's just, it would be so easy to go to Vanderbilt and just collect a paycheck. You know, it's just, he's showing that fight. And I do think, you know, if he does have some success and he might end up leaving for a bigger job and he played at North Carolina, I believe. And Roy Williams is 70 years old. So that's some, I've heard rumors, let's just say about, you know, he could be a name to keep an eye on in the North Carolina circles. Now, will that happen? You know, there's, you know, there's going to be plenty of debate on if and when Roy Williams retires, who should replace him. But Jerry Stackhouse will be a name that's at least mentioned in those conversations. So especially if he continues to like this was a program that went 0-18 in SEC play just a couple of years ago. So anything that Jerry Stackhouse can do to get them closer to 500 is going to be seen as a great coaching job there. Jerry Stackhouse, all-time great episode of MTV Cribs. Man, that place in Detroit, holy cow. I don't know what happens with that. Like, if he sold it, have to double-check. Don't know what his property is looking like in Nashville, but that was a guy who knew how to max out a house, no doubt about it. Adam Stockton wants to know, he says, how long will BBN tolerate Calipari's antics? 50 mil to buy out a lifetime contract is quite the pretty penny, and not to mention who they would have to pay to come in. Not even sure who would be in the list of candidates. Adam, what are your thoughts on that? Calipari is going to be there for as long as he wants to be. And there's just nothing that's going to change about that. Kentucky fans shouldn't want anybody else because, again, that's a massive buyout, like like he said. And he brings in top recruits. He just needs to tweak his style. Like We're starting to see that lately, that this team is having a little bit more success now that they've started to embrace the three-point shooters. Like, Calipari used to bench guys. He used to bench Dav- Davion Mintz. He used to bench Brandon Boston. He used to bench Dante Allen for missing threes. It's like, no, if you can knock down threes at a 33% rate, like that's keep shooting them. Like he just needs to adjust his style and he needs to adjust his recruiting. Like he didn't bring in anybody who can shoot threes this year. He just needs to realize that the game is changing and it's going to be about recruiting the right guys. Like I like, Auburn's recruiting class obviously better than than I do Kentucky's because Kentucky had Justin Powell in their backyard and he was one of the best freshman three-point shooters before he suffered a concussion and he hasn't come back yet so you know hopefully if they do hold him out there's not much sense in playing Powell moving forward but if he comes back next year and can play alongside JT Thor like that's a really good Auburn team and those guys were four-star and three-star guys and so I'd rather have that these guys who can play today's game rather than a guy like Brandon Boston, who he's been better at three point range lately, but like his scoop shots and like his mid range jumpers that he was known for in high school, like that doesn't really necessarily play in today's college basketball. So if you can get more guys like Tyler hero at Kentucky, then Calipari's. And I think Calipari can do that. He's going to adjust. He's a, he's a decent coach. It's just, and he's a, the all-time great recruiter, so 
he'll get his guys in there and I think he'll be around for a while. And uh, there's going to be some more deep tournament runs in Cal's future. Does the fact though, that there are blue bloods this year, perhaps like we've never seen before struggling, does that in a way kind of back off some of the pressure on Cal? Because it's like, all right, you look at what Duke has become this year and it's a disaster. You look at UNC, it's become a disaster. And then meanwhile, Gonzaga and Baylor are dominating the sport and you're sitting there thinking, wait a minute, I, I thought this was supposed to be, you know, we're in every other sport we've seen sort of the blue bloods dominate and whether it's college football, the NBA with the Lakers winning and Dodgers winning the world series, whatever it's been, you know, we've looked across all these platforms and seen the traditional powers winning and in college basketball, that hasn't been the case. Does that in a way, like I, I realize Kentucky fans are a different breed when it comes to passion, but does that in a way sort of back off some of this pressure on Cal? Yeah, I think a little bit because you look at, you know, there's not a team out there that's loaded with freshmen that's doing well this year. Like there's just not. And that's, that's the biggest impact that this pandemic has had is that, you know, a lot of times Cal wants to roll out four freshmen and like maybe one sophomore or like a grad transfer big man. And that's been successful when you have practices, but when you have COVID dominating the headlines and everything and you don't have practices then you know you've seen duke struggle this year they might not make the tournament they just had their top freshman jalen johnson opt out you know you have north carolina's in the tournament picture right now but you know they're not as good as they once were can be michigan state another team like that team just is inexplicably bad and i think that that comes more you know they just lost a generational player like cassius winston so they're just and they haven't had a good point guard this year yet as much as, you know, Rocket Watts, he has a really cool name, but sure. it's just, it's just these teams need time to, when you have, when you rely on freshmen the way that Duke does and Kentucky does, and then you lose all your preseason practices due to the pandemic, like that's going to have an impact on you. And we're seeing that. And if things go back to normal before next year, then I think that we'll see some major bounce backs from those two teams, but you know, over at Duke, I know, you know, coach K is 73. So, you know, that that's going to be a situation to keep an eye on because he has a good 2021 class coming in, but 2022 is a little up in the air right now. So just keep an eye on that situation, but I think Kentucky will be fine, but you know, you're right. This pandemic has taken a toll on the blue bloods a little bit because they rely so much on freshmen. Speaking of recruiting, Will Martin wants to know how good was that 2017 Alabama recruiting class? Sexton, Petty, Herb, jo Herb Jones, Alex Reese, just a loaded class. I think he just wants you to say nice things about that Alabama recruiting class. And I will. I mean, just starting with Colin Sexton, he's been really great for the Cleveland Cavaliers this year. He's really adjusted to the NBA game after a little bit of a slow start to his rookie year, but he's, he's a player right now. And, uh, and, yeah, what can you say about John Petty and Herb Jones that hasn't already been said? Herb Jones is going to win the SEC Player of the Year, and I don't think it's going to be particularly close. John Petty is leading the league in three-pointers right now. He's made 55. Nobody else has even made 50, I don't think, as things stand right now. So, you know, he's these guys are really good. Alex Reese, let's not, you know, let's not discount him. You know, he has some really big games that uh, that he can really take over the offense when needed, and uh, that's good because, you know, Petty's a little streaky sometimes, but these guys are firing on all cylinders and it's been really fun to watch. So yeah, kudos to Avery Johnson for leaving the, yeah. cu the cupboard full there for, uh, for Nate Oates when he, when he got to Tuscaloosa, I mean, Keon or uh, not Keon, uh, Kira Lewis jr. Too is tearing it up in the NBA right now. So uh, yeah, there's, there's been some guys come through Alabama here recently and uh, now it'll be up to Nate Oates to keep that going. But he has the number nine player in the 2021 class signed for next year, J.D. Davison. So keep an eye on that guy, too. Jake Rhino, a question that I've wondered about for a little bit as well because of a huge Buzz Williams guy. He asked, how long is it going to take Buzz to get things going in College Station? That depends on what A&M fans mean by get things going because a and never going to be like a – a college basketball powerhouse, you know, the, the best that they can hope for, I think, in my opinion, is a South Carolina like run from that 2017 season under Frank Martin, you know, you get some, you get a good class in there, you coach them up. And then when they're seniors, 
then you make your run. That's the way that Gonzaga used to be. That's the way Villanova used to be. And now we see like when that happens, sometimes you can build on that to become a team that gets five-star players in there from some, for some recruiting classes. So, you know, I, I think that if you, if by get things going, you mean compete on a regular basis in the sec. Well, next year I think would be a reasonable goal for that because his teams are always tough. They're always stifling defensively. They just can't make any shots this year. Their offense is pitiful, but you know, they have a guy in Emmanuel Miller who I think will come back next year. And if you can build around him, then you can be a 500 team in sec play next year. And then as you continue to put up 500 or better conference records, your recruiting classes get better. And that's the recipe for success for Buzz Williams. And I think he'll get there just two, two, three years, maybe. Buzz Williams to college basketball, PJ Fleck to college football. Fair comp? No? I like that. I mean, I think that, uh, I think that Buzz Williams has the edge and sweatiness, but uh, (laughs) that's not particularly close. I mean, plus PJ coaches up there in Minnesota. So not a lot of sweating going on up there. (laughs) Big sweat guy. Big sweat guy. All right. Last one from Jeremy Denner. He wants to know, what do you make of UGA basketball? (laughs) Well, I'm not the biggest fan of them right now after what they did to Mizzou last <laughs> night, but uh, I'll say some nice things here. I think that, uh, you know, their defense is not good um, when they're playing teams other than Mizzou, but their offense is really good. They have some players. Severe Wheeler is one of the best point guards in the league. Katie Johnson is an exciting freshman. I'm just, I am impressed. I know you said something off the top about Tom Crean, uh, you know, being better without the number one overall pick and in, in Anthony Edwards. And I think that there's some truth to that because guys are not standing around waiting for Anthony Edwards to do something anymore, you know, and Anthony Edwards more often than not would make a play, but you know, that was a 500 team with him last year. So yeah, I think that when guys have roles and they feel like they're able to get into a rhythm a little bit more then good things happen. And, uh, Tom Cream, we know he can recruit. He'll have some more five-star guys coming through that Georgia program. It's just about getting them to buy into the team aspect of it and buy into the defense. I mean, that's the next step. You got to find some guys who can play some defense and not just run and gun all the time. Somebody who is an Indiana grad, I can say I've heard those words before about (laughs) Tom Cream just once or twice. Um, a couple of things before I let you go. First, you, you hit it on you hit on it already with SEC Conference Player of the Year. Who is it right now, and who wins it? Herb Jones. Are we in agreement there? Okay. Oh yeah. So I'll skip that one. I'll skip that one. SEC Coach of the Year. I assume it's Nate Oates right now, and will he win it? Yeah, I, I think absolutely. I don't think that there's really even a, a close second. I think Quan, or Conzo Martin at Mizzou was there after the Tigers beat Alabama, but this three game losing streak. It's like, Nope, you're, you're off the list now. Now you're closer to the hot seat than you are sec coach of the year. So yeah, he, uh, he dropped off Rick Barnes, Tennessee's got too much talent to be as inconsistent as as it is. Uh, You know, right now, maybe the second place is either uh, Mike white or Eric Musselman. And then uh, Kermit Davis is closing on that second place fast, but I'd be shocked if, uh, if, Nate Oates didn't win this award. People buying into his style too. I remember when he came over from Buffalo and my brother had watched him coach in person a couple of times because they played against Ball State. And I remember him telling me, man, his style, like it is just, it is a different kind of fierce. It just comes at you. It comes at you. And guys are going to want to play for that. And Alabama has figured it out and seemingly at the right time. Adam, I've got our next bet to sort of settle the score here because we're at an even, we're, Okay, you, you won the most recent bet, so you got recency bias here with our, our draft that we did for the three Power Five conferences who actually looked like they were playing football and weren't like foot in the water and then deciding at the last minute that they were going to play. So um, we're one and one right now. I know you're a big distance runner. I used to be super into it as well, but then I kind of shifted and then I got back into it over the course of the pandemic. I don't know any of the details yet, and I don't know how we'd figure this out or set this up at SEC Media Days. But I'd like to challenge you to a race, a 10K specifically. Ooh, 10K. Loser, 10K. Loser has to buy the winner a six-pack of their choosing and 
the loser has to post a video on Twitter saying that they don't have SEC speed and the winner does. Is that fair? All right. I got to start training. I usually run like 5K, so uh, I'll have to up my distance a little bit here, but you're on. I'll go 5K. I'll go, I'll go 5. What, what time are we working with for, for 5K now? Like, give me, give me a, a, a measuring stick here, a, a mark that I, I know I need to be able to hit in training. 25 minutes. We can do that. We can do that. Okay. All right. The pace has been set. Adam, this has been great. Everyone check out Starting Five, which is Adam's weekly column slash video series. Also, go subscribe to the Saturday Football Newsletter that Adam puts together um, that we always, always talk about. Adam, we'll talk soon, man. Sounds good. Thanks for having me. I am so pumped about the next two interviews that we've got. We've got a couple more first-time guests locked in. People that I think you're really going to like hearing about. Some familiar names in the SEC. I've also got something... Okay, so I did the um, SEC teams as current country music stars. Did that a few weeks ago. I've got an idea that's similar to this that I th- I'm pretty sure somebody in the Facebook group has brought up before and thrown out. So I, I apologize if I'm gonna if I'm gonna butcher who originally came up with this idea. It probably wasn't mine, but I think I'm gonna do it in figuring it out. I think I'm gonna do it. Um, or maybe we'll add something to the end of it, but it's just something that I've been kind of kicking around for, for a little bit because I think that's the original roots of it so we can associate it with that. But I want to thank everybody who left us a comment, uh, question for Adam Spencer. Appreciate Adam coming on. Appreciate Eli Drinkwitz for coming on as well. If you have not before, leave us a five-star review. Go like, subscribe, go subscribe to our newsletter. But, you know, five-star reviews are always fun. We love getting those, and it means a lot. I know our advertisers love those as well. So, Will, I don't have anything to say to you other than it took us uh, 40 minutes being on a Zoom call to realize that we were both wearing homage NBA Jam shirts. And I don't have anything else to say other than that's a win in my book. Will, we won today just by that. Yes, I'm still, my head is spinning from those Tennessee assistants. So, yeah, it's been a big day. Excellent. Thanks, man. All right, guys, we'll talk soon.